Bible, you can grab one under the chair in front of you, uh, or you could have grabbed a scripture journal on your way in this morning. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 1. I don't know if any of you remember the 1960s, because I don't. But I, uh, I've seen a lot of YouTube videos, um, and I've watched Forrest Gump a bunch of times. Uh, and what I realized, though, about the 1960s is, is this tumultuous time in our country of transformation. There is a lot of political upheaval. There is debate and protests and riots and, and all kinds of uh, things that are trying to be changed. And the backdrop among things like civil rights movements uh, and, and even economic prosperity and, and coming out of World War II and the Korean War is yet another war in Vietnam. And this was a, a cause for especially young people and students and, and, and young uh, people who wanted to have political influence to, to bring protests and to have rallies and to speak out against this war. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing that up today is because if we dive into Ecclesiastes 3, there's a band called the Birds. And they wrote a song, well, they didn't write it, but they performed a song basically drawing out of this first section in chapter three. And maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you weren't born in the 60s or, or alive in the 60s, but you might remember, uh, there is a season, turn, turn, turn. Yeah, somebody knows it. All right, good. That's all I got for singing, so you got to give me a little credit. Um, but you probably heard it because it's so popular that it continues to become this like iconic way of setting tone in movies and TV shows today, right? The Wonder Years and Forrest Gump and, and even movies today, um, they use that just to sort of take people back in time right to the 60s. And it's iconic, I think, not just because it was, it was a Hot 100 song, which it was, but because of the message that it, it proclaims. And it really just takes everything but six words out of Ecclesiastes 3. And as we dive into the first chapter, uh, we'll read that in just a second. But the birds ended their song. It was a song of protest. Ecclesiastes 3 ends with, there's a time for war and a time for peace. And the song ends, I swear it's not too late. Right? They had this optimistic tone as they, as they went through this rattling off of these, these uh, contrasting experiences and seasons of life. There's these times for joy and a time for mourning, a time for, for hope and a time for uh, sadness. There's these things that you experience in life, and there's a time for war and a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. That's what the birds wanted us to, to hear and to believe, that we could have that peace. That in this life, we could experience some type of joy and that we could overcome, especially in their time, this, this war in Vietnam and move on to better things as a country. But that's not Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes 3. And Solomon is completely opposite in Ecclesiastes 3. What he does is he begins to, to form these, two, these couplets, right? these contrasting statements, these two statements about these seasons in life, birth and death. Planting and plucking up, like plucking up a weed. It's these, it's these things in which uh, the passage unfolds the reality of life as, as one big picture, and yet it's not, it's not a good picture. As we go through the section, we realize that as we experience these things that in human existence, it, it leaves the writer in a sense of despair. It's quite the opposite of the bird's optimism for peace. Solomon's saying is real life is hard. Real life is, is disappointing. Real life is, is 
chaotic. So chapter three opens with this. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of, for war and a time for peace. Solomon is taking this poem and, and forcing us as his readers to zoom in onto our experience of life. Right before this, he's been fairly generic, even in, in, in his own ways, bi autobiographical, telling us what his experience has been like. But now in this broad sense, he's calling us to look at our own experiences and personalize it. I mean, just take a moment. Think about your life. However old you are, think back for the last 5, 10, 15 years. What have you experienced? Through the lens of this chapter, what are the things that you can remember? What are the things that you see? I mean, I, when I read that, I see, uh, I see really, really clearly the night that I uh, met my wife, right? A time to love. A few minutes later, I found out she had a boyfriend. A time to hate. Like, <laughs> but that ended, and we moved on, and, and God did things right. Um, over the last year, Lauren and I have celebrated the birth of, of our son, and, and it's been a season of, of joy and experiencing all kinds of happiness, uh, and also a season of just sheer exhaustion, a season of frustration and confusion, of trying to figure out what's next, of trying to figure out how we're supposed to do this. And then as soon as he, he, we figure out how we're supposed to put him down for bed, he, he moves into another season. Right? So a, a time for birth. You know, I mean, even just right now, like, so Benji started doing this thing. He's, uh, he's like trying to climb up onto everything. Uh, so like couches and tables and chairs. Uh, but the really interesting thing is he loves music. And so he like, he'll be standing there holding the table and just any song will come on. You can play it on your phone or, or it's a commercial. He just starts like dancing and he like looks at you like he can't even control himself. And that, that's literally what he does. I'm not saying he's got rhythm. I'm just saying he's dancing. Um, <laughs> Right, it's, it's just a, a time to dance, and he feels it, and that's life, because a few minutes later, he's going to burst out in tears and frustration over something else. But Solomon isn't just telling us to look at these moments piece by piece, to, to remember that, yeah, there was that time I was happy, and oh, there was that time I was sad, it was hard, but, but he's using this poem to, to give us a big picture to see that all of life coming together has these seasons and these experiences and these times, that this is truly what life is. It's both. It's not war or peace. You experience both. It's not hate or love. You, you, under, you experience both. It's not mourning and sadness or laughter and joy. It's both. That's what real life is. That's what we experience as human beings. He's, he wants us to see the big picture because he's starting to draw a conclusion that everybody experiences it this way. 
Everybody has the same experiences. When you read that list, you can think of things in your life when, oh, I should never have done that. I wish I hadn't done that. Or I was such a good decision. I'm glad that happened. I, I, I was so happy in that time of my life. I was so sad in that season of my life. I was so lonely. I had so many friends. And as you look back, that is what life is. It's this picture of all of these things coming together. He's inviting us to see our whole life in this poem. One, uh, one commentator wrote it this way. This is the way our lives are. We cannot predict, we cannot determine, we cannot recognize a pattern. It sounds like noise rather than a signal. We find ourselves enmeshed in these seasons, but we have no sovereign determination over them. See, the way that this, this poem gets interjected into chapter three is really interesting because the first two chapters, which Tim outlined for us the last couple weeks, Solomon is basically telling us about his life. And he's telling us about all the things that he experienced. And remember, this is the king of Israel. This is a guy who prayed to God to give him wisdom. And God, God made him by reputation the most... Uh, we're getting a little more charismatic here. Uh, God made him by reputation the most wise man in history. And what that means is he knows what's going on. He, he's prayed to God and, and God has given him the ability to, to learn and, and to understand and to lead well. And, and what he says about living wisely, it's vanity. But not only in his wisdom, he also talks about uh, in his righteousness, right? To live righteously, to obey the commands of God, to try to be a good person, to be good enough. And what he says in the end is that it was vanity. And not only that, he's a king. He has power and authority and, and he can do things and, and, and make things happen. And he can do things for his people and try to lead well. And he can work hard at his position. And what he found in the end, it was vanity. It was worthless. Meaningless. And as a king, he could do whatever he wanted. And so wealth, he had it. Pleasure, he had it. Sex, he had it. Everything that he could try to enjoy, self-indulgence, he had it. And it wasn't enough. It was vanity. In these first two chapters where Solomon is saying, I have tried everything I could and life sucks. It wasn't enough. I tried to be good. It wasn't enough. I tried to enjoy everything I possibly could and it wasn't enough. And then he gets to this poem and he starts to describe life and he's saying it's, it's good and it's bad. It's, it's fun and it's hard. It's, it's, it's all of these things, this cacophony of experiences that sometimes it's, it's really good and sometimes it's really hard and sometimes like this relationship's fun but then I have to deal with this guy at work and, and this guy at school and my professor doesn't understand this about me and, and all of these things that I'm worried about about my health or, or, or my, my staff or my, it's all just kind of pressing down on me. And that's what life is. It's this mixture of, of blessings and curses. It's as though we can't, we can't really get a hold of what we, what we want. It's as though whatever we try, whatever we, we do, we, we, we just can't control the outcome. We can't avoid the stuff we don't want to have in our lives the pain, the suffering, the disappointment. And we can't even control the things that we want. We can't work hard enough to make sure we, we, we earn enough so that we can travel enough. 
we, we can't do it. We don't, we don't have the control. Even the king of Israel didn't have the power. So he gets to the end of this poem and he has this tone of despair. It's, it's this question begging, like, what's the point? And we see that in verse 9 because he reiterates the question from earlier in chapter 2. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Again, it's just this confusing like string of sentences that, that Solomon, the, the, the preacher in this book, is just, is just writing almost from his heart in, in a stream of consciousness. He gets to the point of this poem where he outlines like, this is what life really is like. And, and then he gets to this question of what, what, what worth is all this toil that I'm doing? What is, what is this? And yes, God is eternal and sovereign over all creation. Uh, we see that in, in like verses 14 and 15. Right? We just sang that in a song a few minutes ago, that God is in control. God's majesty is put on display. Right? The glory of his creation, the earth and the stars, the, the, the love that gets expressed between people, the life itself that becomes this miraculous gift from the Lord. God is, is sovereign and overseeing all of it. But from our experience, from our vantage point, it seems like chaos. It seems like, like we have nothing to do about it. Like all we, all we do is continue to experience this, this back and forth. So God, God is eternal. But we're not. And so all we toil for, all we work for, all that we strive for, it comes to an end. If it ever comes in the first place. And then he gets to this, I think the crux of this chapter, I think the point that Solomon is trying to make in, the, in this section of confusion. He says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And this is the reality that we struggle with, every one of us, every day. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we are all desperately trying to find it. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we are all desperately trying to find it. And the problem with that is that we seek to find that eternity. We seek to fill that void, right? We have this, we have this thing in our souls, in the depths of our being, that says we're looking for something that lasts. Something that, surpasses, uh, something that surpasses this world even, something that surpasses uh, whatever we can, we can achieve. Like if, if we just could do a little bit more, if we could just have a little bit more, if we could just experience a little bit more, like there's something that, that, that it's, it's just, we need more. 
We need more. Like, like an end that doesn't seem to satisfy our being. God has put that sense in us. And yet, we can't find anything to fill that void. But we try. I mean, we try hard. And we try to do that with everything that we experience, both in seasons and in things. Right? So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, think about singleness and marriage, especially in the context of, of a lot of churches, communities, college campuses like GCU. Um, singleness becomes this season that they focus on as like something you have to get through. Right? You're single now, but like, guys, don't worry. There's like four girls to one on our campus. Like ring by spring, you're going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you laugh. I've heard the speech I didn't even go there. <laughs> right? Marriage becomes this like idol, like, okay, look, you're going to get through this season and it's going to be hard and you're going to have to deal with it, but then you're going to start dating somebody, you're going to get married, and then psh, God's going to bless you. It's going to be so good. You get an apartment, you take vacations, you buy a house, you're going to have kids, you're going to have sex. Like, it's amazing. Paul doesn't talk about singleness that way. Paul writes that singleness should be uh, celebrated. Like he says, like, hey, I wish more of you were like me because singleness allows me to focus on the ministry that God has before me. It allows me to do things like travel from city to city to proclaim the gospel. It allows me to build relationships with new people where I go and to build communities around me and to be a leader and to continue to stay connected with other people outside of wherever I am. Even when I'm in prison, I have these relationships and I'm pouring into other church leaders so that ministry can continue to be pushed forward because I'm single. I don't have the responsibilities of a husband and a father. He's not saying that being a husband and a father is bad. What he's saying is that in his season of singleness that God has called him to, he is blessing him. And at the same time, Paul's lonely. It's clear at some of the end of his letters, being single is very lonely. And he's writing, I just, I, Timothy, I can't wait for you to come and see me. Right? The, the people that he has his closest relationships with, even outside of, of being married, he still longs for people to be around him. He longs to be cared for. He longs to, to have relationships with others. And so there's this thing that's reality about singleness. There's a blessing in it. There's an opportunity in it. There's a season of singleness that allows people to go and do things to the glory of God. And then there's hardship in it. There's struggle in it. Loneliness is a real thing. And it's not easy. Paul was in prison feeling isolated and it wasn't easy. But that's life. Right? The seasons that we're in, the, the things that we experience, that's life. That, that's, there's these hard, difficult tasks ahead of us. There's these things that we have to endure, but then there's also, there's joys and there's pleasures in the midst of it. And we can't look at singleness as like this season that is like this desert land that we just have to get through until we find the promised land. Because marriage is not the promised land. Like, I love being married. I'm really lucky because I got to marry a woman that I love hanging out with, who makes me laugh, who I think is beautiful, who, like, all kinds of things that we enjoy doing, we enjoy doing together. Like, I'm really lucky in that way. And I don't know too many people that have been married uh, who didn't go into it excited to say, I do. Right? Excited because they got to start a life together and do something that, that they were really looking forward to and think ahead to plan ahead. And I also don't know anybody who's married who doesn't argue. 
I don't know anybody who's married who doesn't go home and think like, oh man, I had a pretty good day. And you walk through the door and you realize you didn't have a good day because you forgot to do something and she's upset. (laughs) Or you just said something wrong, like in the wrong tone, which I do all the time. And I have to apologize. Like that's the reality of, of, of the world that we live in. That's the reality of the human experience. That's the reality of, of what it means to be in this life. Like singleness or marriage, there's, there's great joys and, and blessings in those seasons and there's difficulties, there's challenges. There's just the reality of human nature at, at times. And then there's things that, that come around you, right? Whether you're a soldier or not, if your nation is at war, it impacts you. I know a lot of you are college students, and so um, you may not remember like 9-11 very well or at all, but you might remember the impact that that had on the news and on your parents or grandparents or cousins. I had friends who who were trying to figure out um, what it would mean to enlist. And that was six and seven years later. When your nation's at war, it impacts all of us. And it's the same way when your nation's at peace. When your nation's at peace, you experience that as a country, as a culture, as a community. And so there's these things in, in our lives that are these microcosms, these, these seasons that we experience, right? A season of great joy with this new relationship that you, you finally met her and, you've, and she likes you and you like her and you get to explore what that looks like. Uh, and there's these macro things that, that impact all of us together as, as a city, as a nation, as a world. And that's what Solomon is trying to say here. And it honestly seems to be frustrating him and confusing him. Because why is all of this happening regardless of his own circumstances, regardless of his own effort? It's frustrating. Life is just hard and confusing. And so he just kind of throws his hands in the air and said, just whatever you do, just, just enjoy whatever God gives you. Like whatever, whatever he's given you, just enjoy the blessings because at least you have that. You can have a good meal, enjoy some wine, like whatever it is, just, just enjoy it. Because there's other hard things around the corner. So enjoy what you can. And then he concludes, really high note, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Remember, vanity is this picture of like a puff of smoke. When I came in this morning, it was still kind of chilly, and so if I breathe, I could just barely see my breath for just a moment, and it would disappear. That's this picture of vanity. It's this word picture that gives us this sense of of meaningless, of, of here and gone. He has no weight. Now Solomon is saying, all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. 
So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So Solomon hits this point where he just says all is vanity, right? For the human beings, for us, for our experience, the reality is it's nothing better than the animals. All of us just came from dust and to dust we will return. Death is coming. Eventually the clock stops ticking. The heart stops beating. The lungs stop breathing. Death is coming for all of us. Let's pray. Just kidding. (laughs) Here's the reality, right? This is why we're Christians, right? Solomon is saying that that the reality of life is it seems this chaotic, stressful, like sometimes it's great, sometimes it's horrible thing. And he looks up to God and says, I think God's in control, but like all I can experience both. Oh, we're good. Here we go. All I can experience, I can scream if I have to. All we can experience is, is, is just whatever we can enjoy in life. When he says go and do good, that's like go and enjoy what you can, right? Go and have fun at Disneyland or enjoy the beach or climb the mountains or whatever. Enjoy those meals. Like just whatever you can experience, enjoy, enjoy that because there's nothing better in life because at the end of the day, we all die. It's coming. Right, I had lunch with my grandpa on Friday. Uh, my grandpa is 91 years old. I am really fortunate to have a relationship with him, and I have lunch with him pretty consistently. Uh, but in those lunches, it's not uncommon for him to talk about what funeral he went to most recently or what friend passed away. Right? And, and for the last, like, four years, this last Friday, it was his sister. Right? And, and so I go to these lunches, and sometimes it's like, hey, I've been working on some furniture, and he's building furniture. He has a table in his driveway that he's putting together. But sometimes it's, hey, like, Joe passed away, and then Joe's wife. You know, eventually it was his wife, my grandma, and then it was his other best friend, and his other best friend, and the last best friend that was still alive, and their wives. That's the conversations that we have. When he's 91 years old, he doesn't talk to me about, oh, I wish I just saved a little bit more in my retirement. I wish I, I, wish I had like a, like a really nice Ferrari. Like I just like whip around a Ferrari in Phoenix. You know, 91 doesn't want to whip around a Ferrari. He drives a truck. That way, like, he's fine. Right? He, he doesn't think about those things. What he thinks about is the experiences that he had with those people. Right? He thinks about the vacations they took and the meals they shared and the holidays they celebrated and the births that they celebrated together of each of their children and raising their kids together and, and, and also the hardship in those seasons, the difficult times, the, the times when they weren't sure and ends would meet, the times when they, they didn't know what to do with this kid or, or with that friend or the, the things that they experienced together, the community that they had around them. And the reality is, and this is why we're Christians, is that life is hard. It's a challenge. And death is coming. That's a reality. We don't experience that as Americans. We don't talk about that. Like we believe that whatever we have to do, we can do to stop it. But we can't. The mortality rate in history is like 100%. And Solomon ends his, his section here with, Almost no hope. It's like, forget it. Just like, 
go have some wine. I don't know. But why we are Christians is that we have hope, that we face death. And we just sang it in a song a couple minutes ago. Like death is just the doorway to the eternity that our hearts long for. Death is just a moment of us moving into the reality that we have always been seeking, the reality that we can't experience in this life, we can experience in the next life. We experience through Christ. He has come to overcome death. In Adam, death came, and through Christ, life has come. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather and to sing praises to your name, to recognize your holiness and uh, your eternal being and the presence that you've even come through the power of your spirit today. And Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts as we sing this final song and as we prepare for communion, that we do so in remembrance of what your son, our savior, Jesus has done to bring us hope, to bring us peace, to bring us love and to bring us new life. Father, we pray that you would continue to work in us. And I especially pray for those who don't know you today. I pray for those who think this is silly or, or foolish or religious mumbo jumbo, God, that you would grip their hearts to the reality of their own death, the reality of their own circumstances, the reality of their own seasons of life, the, the shame and the pain and the hurt and the joy and the, and, the, and the happiness that they've experienced and to recognize that whatever they try, they experience both. That all toil seems to be vanity. And yet in Christ, we can have hope beyond such vanity because his work is finished and our lives have been saved by his. It's his name we pray, amen.